Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nabe, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Hey, thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. I appreciate Walter's work, and I know you will, too. WalterParks.com if you'd like to know more about Walter's music. Devine Dial, every week I thank you for managing WPVM-FM. We couldn't do these shows without you, and we do appreciate all your good work. WPVM-FM.org if you'd like to know more about community radio. If you would like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. That's my email. I would love to hear from you. And if you'd like to join me on a Saturday morning at noon Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Mountain Time for a, an hour-long writing session, a little bit of a workshop scene, the door is always open. I call it the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session. And my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, and I are on every Saturday morning. And if you have an inclination to write, you are invited. The door, like I said, is always open. And as you know, if you've been listening to this show, sometimes I have people on the show I've known a long time, and other times I just bump into somebody and they can talk, and I invite them to come on the show and tell their story. Today I have a good friend. His name is Mark Trepetti. Mark and I have known each other quite a while now. Mark just moved out here to Taos, where I'm working today, and I said, Hey, Mark, since you're new to Taos and since you've been roaming around the world a bit, Love to have you on the show and just have a conversation. Get to know each other anew since we haven't seen each other much over the years. So Mark Trepetti, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thanks, Navi. Thanks so much. It's great to see you again. It's good to sit here in the sun on oh. this couch and have the door open. And in the middle of the wintertime, the western sun in the dry climate is a bit different than some of the weather they have in the east in January and February. I'll say it's just beautiful. So Mark, when you and I knew each other back when, back when you were living in New York, we talked a bit about the work you were doing, which was in the marketing business. You also, back then, talked a fair amount about your spiritual practice. You were starting to think about that even all those years ago. So you were dancing between the commercial world of making a living and the spiritual world of making a living in a different kind of way. So I would love to start on the spiritual note of making a living or making one's life unfold in a, in a way that's non-commercial and ask you just to reflect on the journey you've taken to get yourself to the point where you have these sensibilities you have today. That's a great observation and that's a interesting point that now it's been 20 plus years and I wish I could tell you that I've made a tremendous amount of progress <laughs> in in the spiritual realm but they call it a path for a reason and you're correct in the early 2000s when I had my uh, agency on the Bowery in New York I was just starting but other things were percolating perhaps it was the notion that this commercial path, applied arts, creative director, designer path for me was an assumption that I had made and that assumption I was questioning and that led to deeper and deeper considerations. You know, uh, what what is 
the purpose of my life. What is going to make me happy? And there I am in the belly of the beast, an ad guy in New York City in my startup mode. And it was very challenging and it brought up other considerations. And I think that was the beginning of this observation that you're making where I fuel two parallel paths. One was making a living and continuing doing what I was doing, which to some degree I still do today. But the other was going very, very deep into Tibetan Buddhism and Ashtanga Yoga and related spiritual practices. So here we are 22 years later. A lot of people, myself included, spend a lot of time talking about spiritual practice and spirituality. And I do practice yoga a bit and I have some spiritual sensibilities, which means to say I will take a walk and think about divinity or the universe or the expanse. I've never really thrown myself into it as a practice. What do you think motivated you to take yourself in? Was it a motivation that was driven from something inside of you? Or was it a voice that you heard calling out that you followed or a little bit of both? Mm. Uh, that's a great question. My tendency as a, as a person is to do things in rather dramatic fashion. I will make a decision and then act on it. And the thing that I know about my uh, practice and spiritual evolution is that you can make those decisions like that all day long and <laughs> until you're really ready, the transformation isn't going to happen. I can give you a very good example. In, in 2010, which is, what, nine years after you and I met, or eight years after you and I met in New York, I started doing very deep uh, solo retreat practice. And what that required was that I would go into these little tiny cabins in the mountains of Colorado, in southern Colorado, for what at the outset was a month at a time. So for four weeks, I would go into this cabin and not talk to anybody or see anybody. I would practice meditation for 10 hours a day or 12 hours a day. I did my first one in January of 2010 at a beautiful place, which I have returned to many times. And I came out of that retreat knowing that I was going to close down my agency after, after 11 years. And I did. <laughs> if there's ever going to be a stake in the ground that really ignited a deeper practice on my part or a deeper change of intention or intent, it was that, January 2010. And I did shut down the brick and mortar aspect of my agency after 11 years. We had a wonderful time and made a nice living and I met tons of great people in New York. But from that point on, I've made a living virtually. I've not had an office. I've not had a staff. I've just organized freelancers all around the world, and it's worked. But, you know, I continue doing, I've now done seven of those long retreats and occasionally smaller ones, and that is kind of the lifeblood of, of my, my practice. Yeah. In that kind of work, in that kind of practice, it obviously requires a fair amount of wherewithal to show up and be by yourself for a whole month. Was there a point in that work when you felt at ease with it, almost as if, well, I'm not deciding to do this. This is like drinking water when I'm thirsty. Whereas prior to that, there must have been some work to stay with it. Did that point come for you? In my personal practice, which is a Tibetan Buddhist practice, there's a lot of learning around karma and, 
and emptiness and how that relates to compassion. And so there's a bit of a formula. And so I would answer your question in part by saying that I believe that I have a bit of karma uh, from past lives for this type of work. You know, we were just talking a minute ago and laughing about you know, being on the road. These last two COVID years, you know, a lot of people have been out on the road and been out experiencing nature and so forth. And probably a lot of them realize that they, they've taken to it quite nicely and others probably realize they're a little bit out of their comfort zone. But I, I took to this deep practice and that's not to say that it wasn't incredibly challenging in there sometimes because you're, you're basically addressing your mind. And and, and deep assumptions that can be very, very, very challenging and very uncomfortable. And of course, sometimes were, but I don't think I've ever done anything as rewarding as doing these deep retreats in my life. You talk about karma. A lot of people hear that word. We all use it. I've used it. Everybody says, oh, it's my karma. It's this and that. Skating a bit on the surface, I think, often when people use it, I do myself because I'm not exactly sure what karma is or what you mean when you say karma from the Tibet, from the Tibetan point of view what does that mean and how can you help those of us who don't really have a deep understanding of it to understand it better it's inconceivably complicated in our lineage it's an indo-tibetan lineage so tibetan buddhism came directly from india and of course buddhism is the buddha and even the buddha said Karma is so complicated, he can't even explain it. I, I, it's really funny that we're talking about this because I remember when I had the agency, there was a, a lovely woman that worked with me for many years, very talented, very dedicated, and she married a man who was uh, in the World Series of Poker. This was like early 2000s, and I'm just getting into this whole Buddhist thing, and she was going to travel to Las Vegas. He was going to play in the World Series of Poker in Las Vegas. And she told me that their plan was they were going to go out there and start handing out $1 bills to all the homeless people they could find to create the karma for him to be successful in the World Series of Poker, which was occurring the next day. Karma, it's a formula in a way. Some karmic ripenings, some karmic intentions are more powerful than others based on how deeply it's resonating with you who the person is or the situation is that, you, that you're interacting with. For instance, in our lineage, we call high karmic objects would be our spiritual teacher, our mother, our father, our partners. And so the karmas that you create, the actions through your body, speech, and mind that you create around these people are much more powerful than a passing beeping of the horn or a muttering under your breath or not holding the door for somebody. So there's that aspect of it. And then the other aspect of it is over what period of time does karma ripen? And now that gets incredibly complicated because we're talking about countless lifetimes. So when the Buddha says, I can't even explain the complexities of karma, you're left with really nothing other than the belief the innate belief, the feeling in your body that your actions are creating consequences and you start behaving from that standpoint and that's the beauty of it. And what would the relationship be between consequences? We all know what that means. You run the stop sign on ice and you crash into the telephone pole. That's a consequence of your speedy choice. Karma and consequences, they seem to have a relationship. Is it immediate, long-term or both? Well, let's use your car crash example. 
you're speeding and you slide off the road and slam into a telephone pole and damage your car. According to the laws of karma and emptiness, you're speeding, you're sliding, and you're hitting the telephone pole are three completely separate incidences. And not one of those three incidences has anything to do with the other. So, <laughs> now this is the hard part, not just for me, but, you know, maybe for some of the people that are listening tonight, to, to think that your speeding didn't cause your accident is a profound thought. Because your speeding will create another karmic ripening in the future. Your sliding on the ice, being out of control, is the result and will create another karmic ripening in the future. And you're hitting that pole as the result of some level of impact that you've created on another human being at some point in the past. These are the rules, and this is where the hard work comes. It's tough on a daily basis to keep this in mind, but that's the practice. You know, Getting angry, for instance, and raising your voice to your partner. What are the reasons that you got angry, and what are the consequences of you berating them and knowing... Those two actions had nothing to do with one another, yet understanding that karma is an unstoppable force and that you getting angry was the result of a seed that was planted previously. And you mentioned past lives. And when you first came to visit me about an hour ago, you made a comment about there's no such thing as linear time. And T.S. Eliot said, time past and time present are both perhaps contained in time future, and time future contained in time past. I think that's the quote. It's a circular thing. So how do you explain past lives within the context of nonlinear time? I want to address two things to answer your question. One, one is, if you continue to practice the formula, I'm going to use that word. I'm going to use that word because... Tibetan Buddhism, and as I mentioned, it is an Indic tradition. The Tibetans quantified it like no other civilization ever did. As a matter of fact, the Tibetan written language did not exist prior to Buddhism coming to Tibet. It was an oral tradition. The Tibetan language is based on the translation of Buddhist Sanskrit texts. It's, it's fascinating. The two ways I want to answer your question are one is... The more you practice this logic, Buddhism is logical, and Tibetan Buddhism created logical systems. The most famous Tibetan teacher as it evolved in Tibet was Jason Kappa. He was born in 1357 and died in 1419, and he was the reformer of Buddhism in Tibet. And he created a logical system which takes all these aspects that I'm discussing, karma, emptiness, and compassion, and creates a logical system around it. The more you study the logic of it, and the more meditation you do, the more you feel these concepts in your body. Do I have any proof of previous lives? Well, that brings me to my second point. Here I am sitting on this couch with you, James Nave, and we met in the early 2000s on the Bowery in New York City. And wouldn't you say that we have an affinity for one another? I would definitely say we do. Okay, I would say that there's a reason for that that we have met before. And, and so I have a logical system that I can kind of trust and believe in, and I have a heartfelt feeling that that is the case, and that's why we're sitting here today. 
when these great Tibetan thinkers have engaged this work over vast amounts of time, centuries really, deep work that's gone on and on and on, and they retreat, they meditate, they expand, they open their sensibilities up. Has it been your experience in the work that you do, your sensibilities open to other things that you can't explain, like dimensions? And the reason I'm saying it is I'm assuming that you and I just can't know all that much. Most of the stuff out there is above our pay grade. We are just two human beings sitting here on a couch aware of the sun and the sky and the time of day and in the air. And yet there must be multiple, multiple, multiple dimensions that these great Tibetan thinkers connected with. Have you experienced any of that yourself? Well, that's a profound question, Navi. <laughs> Along the lines of this particular subject, I would say that there is a similarity in all spiritual practice. All religious belief systems consider this. I can answer your question from what I've read because that's all I know. As you said, I'm just a, a human being and I'm limited, incredibly limited. Maybe the fact that I recognize the fact that I'm incredibly limited is part of my evolution and understanding that there's much more to what's going on than I could possibly have ever thought. I will also tell you that I can look at my life and tell you that I'm a, a very different person now than I used to be. And I think that that's a sign. It's tiny and it's incremental, but it's making its way to the perspective that you're talking about. It's funny, you know, the wellness business nowadays and the, the meditation that's being introduced into modern society and corporate America and all that, it's terrific. In my experience as a Tibetan Buddhist, the ultimate goal is enlightenment. And so these practices are part and parcel of a long path that requires deep, deep study and practice of inner body work, physical body work, mental work, the meditation. It's quite profound. You say the ultimate goal is enlightenment. What happens when one becomes enlightened? I think they would be able to answer your previous question. <laughs> And do you think, based on your studies, other animals have a path to enlightenment as well? We're animals, you and I. The dog comes by and pays a visit every day. I hear the coyotes howl. You live in the east in the summertime. You hear the great creatures of the night singing in the trees. Mm -hmm. Do they have a path to enlightenment, or are we the only ones who do? There's two ways to answer that question. One is that you're assuming that there is a difference between the beautiful animals howling in the night and yourself. The second is the acknowledgement that everything that emanates in the world is a direct projection of your inner world and who you are. This, again, is another very complicated subject. I'll say something like this. I think this is fair to say. There are multiple levels of spiritual practice in the Tibetan Buddhist system. At a certain level, there's the sutrist approach. And a comment that comes from the sutrist approach is the biggest mistake that you could ever make is assuming that the world comes at you and not from you. 
And that's really a very interesting thing to, to consider because that starts to send you down the path of, well, what's a duality? Like what is going on out there that didn't emanate from me in some way, shape or form and then relates back to some of the things we were talking about earlier. As you move along the path, there's the practice of the Vajrayana, which is where you're visualizing and you're doing deity practice, which I've done in many of these long retreats that I've done. And and you're, you're focusing in your meditation and visualizing these particular characteristics that resonate with your inner world. And they say that the biggest mistake you can make when you're practicing the Vajrayana path or the higher teachings is to think that anything around you is normal. That leads to, well, who is that dog? Who is the clerk? Who is my wife? And anything that you come in contact with. And this idea that think it's normal and that there isn't a profound message being given to you from any of these circumstances or any of these beings, that's a challenging and beautiful practice. As you walk your spiritual path, would it be fair to say that enlightenment is something that comes incrementally over a period of time? And then, of course, I have to ask, if we are existing in infinity, is there an end to enlightenment? Or does it just keep expanding and expanding forever? And perhaps all creatures are in the midst of that enlightenment that's there right in front of us. Are we maybe in these questions and in your study and in your work, are you just expanding your awareness of what's already there? Your question addresses a very important subject, and that is, are we turning ourselves into something? Or are we peeling away things to reveal our true nature? And different belief systems practice in different ways. I'm interested and involved in the Dzogchen practice now, which is called the highest vehicle in, in, in this Tibetan Buddhist practice, primarily the Nyingma and the Kagyu traditions. The belief is that we are all innately Buddha, and it's a question of simply perceiving the world a certain way and meditating on that. When people speak of the Dzogchen practice, they say it's incredibly simple and incredibly hard, <laughs> and that's true. Again, this whole logical system, there are first awarenesses, and you and I were talking about this the other day, the shamatha practice, for instance, which is the 10 stages of stilling your mind, whereby someone goes through these various stages, according to Master Kamala Shila of Indian tradition, 10 stages of shamatha, whereby you start out very simply and through a progression of plateaus, you will conquer either agitation or dullness, which are the two aspects of the mind that you're dealing with when you're in a meditative equipoise. And by the time you've achieved shamatha, you have conquered dullness and agitation. You are able to sit for hours and hours at a time without being disturbed. And like one of my teachers loves to say, somebody could put a bag of McDonald's french fries right underneath your nose and you wouldn't even know it's there. <laughs> I really can't answer your question from the standpoint of like, is it ever expanding once you reach enlightenment? I don't know. I don't know if I will ever know. All I know is that my ability to look at myself and my, and my relationship with the world around me has changed dramatically in 16 years. And I only hope that I can continue 
to evolve in this very same direction. So these inclinations that I had in the early 2000s, I'm glad I listened to them. I appreciate that you can't answer the question and neither can I. I can assume it might be possible. And I love the thought that it's ever expanding and that it would never end. In fact, it's eternal, which is to me a great comfort because I'll never understand that. And yet somehow I'm in, yet somehow I'm contained within that eternity and you are too. And here we are along with the creatures singing in the trees and the coyotes howling and whatever other animal walks by. Going back to when you and I first met and you were busy in New York doing your work in marketing and and advertising and deeply involved in that. And when I first met you, I admired you because you seemed to have such a joy for this work and you had some great coats really good clothes and you would go out for your meetings and I remember you'd put your top coat on. It must I might have been cashmere for all I know. It was nice. That work rewarded you and you were able to give a lot of people a lot of insight into how to bring their businesses to bear and how their businesses could grow and how you could grow with it commercially. How did that work serve you as a spiritual teacher? By nature, I'm a creative person. And so I think, as are you and many of the people that are listening, both my parents were fine artists. So I grew up in an environment that was very, very visual and passionate. (laughs) And so I love the creative process. I I don't mean to say when I shut down my brick and mortar agency in, in 2010, that I gave up the process of being a creative person. I I just shifted how I did it. And so for all these years now, this is 2022, I have worked in Europe. I have lived in Shanghai. I have brought my craft everywhere. And I've managed to juggle and integrate my creative process, my strategic insights, my profession, and my spiritual practice. My creative passion allows me to be a better practitioner and a better teacher. I teach from a very visual standpoint and I teach from a very sincere standpoint. And I think that probably that's the way that I would answer your question, that being a creative person, I think I'm very sincere for better or for worse. Sometimes maybe a little, I'm a little naive, but I think that that naivete allows people to, to see me as approachable and sincere and human. And I think that that's what this is all about. You know, look, at the, at the end of the day, to coin a business phrase, <laughs> or at the end of our lifetimes, let's say, to coin a spiritual phrase, it's all about love and compassion. And so we can talk about the Indian system or the Christian system or the Islamic system. From what I can see, from my vantage point, all these practices do is open your heart and and you can get waylaid and you can take a left turn, and but hopefully you make your way back because what it's all about is just being a kinder, gentler, more compassionate human being. And then once you realize that, you know, we're all in the same boat, then things just get a lot easier. I think that that's making your way to the non-dual, which, we, which I touched on before. There is really very little, if any, difference between you and me and everybody listening. It's all the same. 
you are a designer, you are a creative director, you've done that job, you are now a strategic planner using the design ideas, the creative directing ideas, and the strategic planning ideas all in one package. And you do work with agency level businesses. You are an agency level thinker. Agency level means the big advertising agencies will hire or take on clients that are big clients and you work with those clients. Those are the three, the design, the creative and the strategic planning, and then the spiritual is there as well. So in your work, these in these bigger areas where the stakes are really high, things are serious at that level. It's business, quote unquote. How have you been able to influence the way those folks you work with interact with the world in their business by adding your spiritual component, the, the fourth element to those three, the design, the creative director, and the strategic planner? On a personal level, it's been very rewarding because at the outset of my career, as a young man moving to New York right out of art school, you know, it was all about my ideas. And what I've realized through my spiritual practice is that those great ideas are in everybody. So when I interact in these three areas that you just pointed out, or when I interact with executives, business owners of all different cultures now, which has been fascinating, you know, like in Europe and in, in Asia and, and in the United States, of course, on both coasts. But now what I do, is, as opposed to enforcing my creative perspective or my insights onto these individuals, I work to allow it to come out of them. I'm kind of like a sheep herder. <laughs> I see ideas coming from people and I see them going in a certain direction and I just try and herd everybody into the same direction to form the logical conclusion. And my spiritual practice has allowed me to do that because my ego isn't what it used to be. I can see where we need to go and I do believe it's the case, but I'm not enforcing that. I'm trying to allow everybody to see that for themselves and take ownership of the idea and then it just becomes a consensus and much more powerful. So when you are in the field and you're working with your clients, you're also practicing your spiritual oh, yeah. work as, at the same time. Your clients may have encountered that sort of approach with other vendors, other people who come in and help them. I suspect not that many people that work in those environments or bring the spiritual aspect into it. What happens to people in those environments when you're working with them? When they realize something else is going on, do you see them change? <laughs> Let me give you a really good example. Uh, in the evolution of the life of an agency, there's always one client that is their anchor client. You know, They keep them for many, many years, and that client supports the agency in many different ways. My anchor client when I had my agency in New York was CNN, and I had them for the whole time. The whole time I had the agency for 11 years. And the formulation of that relationship started in a beautiful way, and we worked really hard to service that client. And it, we expanded our what we did for CNN to many different levels of the organization in New York and in Atlanta. They were the first clients I called when I told them that I was going to shut down the brick and mortar and they said well of course we want you to continue to work with us and so we'll just keep going you just deliver the goods and so that's the first level of support that they showed 
number of years later, when I was kind of even winding down doing work with many of my clients, including them, this particular gentleman that hired me at the outset of, of our CNN agency relationship was coming through Arizona, where I was living at the time. He called me and said he'd like to have dinner. And so we met for dinner. I hadn't seen him in a while. It was really nice. He was with his wife. And he said, so what are you doing? And I said, well, this is what I'm doing. And I anticipated his question. So I'd written down on a napkin, go inside out, because that was the name of the meditation company that I was starting for corporations. And I said, I'm, I've just incorporated go inside out before I could even finish telling him what I was doing, because he was aware of my trajectory and everything. He said, I want to be your first client. So the client that had been my anchor client as an agency then became my anchor client for my corporate meditation company. And it was so successful that CNN created a meditation room in their headquarters by our design, by my design collaboration with them. And they implemented company-wide meditation program. But anyway, I, th I think that that's a great example of intention a great example of taking action and 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 the results just move. I'm I'm forever grateful for that relationship and those relationships. Yeah. So it sounds like this report you're giving me about the meditation work you did with CNN. Someone outside looking in, so to speak, from the street looking through the window, might not suspect the layers of activity and the nuances the corporate world has. So it's not a one-dimensional arena, is it? No. No, not at all. And personnel is always changing, and people are always changing. I mean, okay, now we're on the subject of change, right? Like, that's just another element of our perception as human beings, is that we need things not to change. There's one thing that we're guaranteed of, is that everything, everything will change. And so the fluidity in the corporate environment I don't know, Navi, like based on what we've been talking about, is the fluidity that we perceive in the corporate environment or the stagnation or the inflexibility that we perceive, where is that coming from? Does it actually exist or is it coming from us? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I would suspect it's probably coming from each one of us because when you get into an environment, no matter whether it's a corporate environment, a family environment, a group of friends, on and on it goes. We are human and we are sitting here on this couch and people listening to this show are humans, unless their dogs are listening. The dogs may understand more about what we're talking about than, than, than we do. We're all in the same proposition really. And at the heart of this proposition is change, is evolution. I am older now than I was when we started this conversation. And everybody listening, they're older as well. We are not the same as we were 45 minutes ago. So I think that fluidity, it must exist for all of us. So we create our own barriers. We create our own narratives around what is and what is not, what seems. And as soon as you say it seems, it changes and it becomes something else. You know, the yogic traditions that's talking about this time factor, right? We've all heard stories about these yogis that stop breathing for hours and hours at a time. The ability to, to slow down life, slow down the breathing process, slow down aging, 
It's fascinating. And so as we get a little close to the time we're going to say goodbye on this show, I would like for you to reflect for a few moments on how people listening could become more involved in their own spiritual practice, or maybe they haven't even thought of it. Could you make some suggestions that might help us to move easily in those directions, those sweet little callings we maybe hear might be little sweet whispers. Yeah. Let me, let me just say that any advice that I would give anybody would just come from my personal experience that that's really important for me to say when, when any of us use the word spiritual, that can either be intriguing to some people or off putting to others. And you and I have talked about this in the last couple of weeks. So I would say that that voice, that nagging thing that maybe just erupted in my life again in the early 2000s when you around when you and I met it's us it's our truth it's our it's our voice and we need to listen and i think that we can be so grossly involved in in life that we're not paying attention to the subtleties and if you want to hear more of that voice there there in my opinion there is no more powerful vehicle than meditation and meditation can be secular. It's Meditation is meditation. Meditation isn't necessarily spiritual. You can apply it to a spiritual practice, but you don't have to. Sitting and listening and watching your thoughts, like we talked about the other day, this whole practice of shamatha, shamatha, stilling the mind. There's some great books out there, you know, great instruction. It's the simplest of all practices, but incredibly difficult. It's not about listening to the sound of the ocean to calm your your nerves, or it's not about lowering your blood pressure, all of these things will occur. It's the quietude that comes with observing your thoughts. And you can start out really very gently and and for short periods of time and build up that muscle until, you know, eventually you're spending more time doing it. But that's the key to the whole thing is is discerning between what's real and what's not in your in your own head. <laughs> and it strikes me, no matter what religious path you've chosen to walk down, you could still incorporate this stillness along the way. And I would imagine all religions suggest a little quiet, prayerful, meditative time, no matter what direction you go in. Yep. 100%. Well, Mark Trapetti, thank you ever so much for being on Twice Five Miles Radio. I really do appreciate this conversation. Thanks, Nave. It's been a pleasure, and it's great to see you, as I said earlier, and, um, and look forward to more interactions. And that, my friends, closes my conversation with Mark Trapetti for now. I suspect Mark and I will get together fairly soon for breakfast and continue talking about all these matters of spirituality and business and culture and whatever else might strike our fancy. While this interview was going on and I was listening to Mark, I, of course, started to think about my own discipline or my own practice around spirituality. And you may have been thinking about your own practice as well while you were listening to Mark talk about his practice. And while Mark was talking about his spiritual practice, I was especially impressed when he mentioned how often he had gone into these long retreats, long silent retreats, a month or more, just sitting in a cabin all by himself, 
thinking his thoughts, meditating hour upon hour. I have to tell you, I've had some times in my life when I've sat silently and let the day wash over me, but I've never done it for a great length of time. So I'm very curious about that. The next time Mark and I get together, I might track it a little bit more. Who knows? I might have an opportunity to try it, which would be really good. I know it. I know it would be good. And yet a part of me thinks, gosh, I have no idea if I could possibly have the patience, the sensibility to just be quiet for that long. I know you're probably thinking, oh, Nave, it will do you good. You need to get off into the cabin and sit there for a while. Probably a good thing to think. So who knows? I'll see if that works for me somewhere down the line. I can tell you I'm intrigued by it. I can tell you that I'm looking at it like one might look at a shiny object across a field, thinking, what is that on the other side of the field? I think I'll go over and check it out. Also, when Mark was telling his stories about retreating into the one month of silence, I remembered back to a time when I did indeed have an experience at a Tibetan Buddhist center. It was the summer of 1985, and I just graduated from University of North Carolina at Asheville, and I decided to take a trip to France. I wanted to go visit my friend John Van Hasselt, who lived in Paris, and then I also thought, well, I'll just take a walking trip around France. So I did exactly that. So in the summer of 1985, I bought my ticket. After I graduated, I got on the plane and flew straight to Paris, went into Paris and hung out with my buddy John for about a week or two. And then I caught a train south to Cannes, where they have the Cannes Film Festival, and started my journey. Originally, I had planned to walk the trails through the woods. I soon realized I wasn't really prepared to walk those trails, so I decided to hitchhike. And the way I hitchhiked was really simple. I just put my thumb out and went southeast, north, or west. It was a bit of a meander, and I really enjoyed that. And I would get little short rides and little long rides, and people befriended me along the way. And often I would camp out under the trees. And camping out meant I had a sleeping bag. So when the day ended, I would just put my sleeping bag wherever I was, and that would be that. I had a little poetry book with me, so I would read poetry. And I was trying to memorize poems back then. So I had a journal and my poetry book and my sack and my sleeping bag. And I would sit under the trees and, and do all of my little bit of work. It sounds romantic, I know. Truth of the matter was, when you're out alone, walking day after day, hitchhiking a bit, walking a bit, it becomes rather tedious. Dawn comes in the summertime in France very early, and the evening comes round, and 10 o'clock finally comes, and that's when it's dark. So it's, it's quite a long day. So after seven or eight days of this meandering, I was getting really tired of it, thinking I need to stop somewhere. So the morning of the eighth day, I put my thumb out, got a ride with 
a woman and her son. Son was driving, and the woman could speak great English. I was not a very good French speaker. I'm still not a great French speaker, although I'm a little better now than I was in 1985. So the woman was so happy to talk about this place she knew about. She said, oh, you must go there. It's a wonderful place. It's a Tibetan Buddhist center. Actually, it's not that far away. It's just up the hill from a little town called saint leon sur She went on to say the place was called the Dagpo Kagayu Ling Tibetan Buddhist Center. She was so excited, especially excited to tell me they only served vegetarian food. Well, by that point, as I've already said, I was getting kind of tired of wandering around the south of France by myself, and I was excited to find some company and eat some vegetarian food and hang out at a Tibetan Buddhist center. So I said, gosh, that sounds great. How can I get there? And she said, you know, I go there all the time, and it's not too far. I'll take you. And she was thrilled when I said, that sounds great. Let's go. And she said, we'll be there in 45 minutes. So off we went to the Tibetan Buddhist Center. So 45 minutes later, we drove through the little town of San Leon Servizea, went up the dirt road and, and came to the red sign that said, welcome to the Dagpo Kaganyuling Tibetan Buddhist Center. So she and her son pulled the car in. I got my gear out. And they said, have a good time, and drove away. So I walked about 100 feet to where some folks were milling about and saw this one fellow, tall man, dark hair, dressed in red monk's robes, walking by. And I said, il est possible pour moi passer la nuit ici? And he looked at me, and he smiled, and he said, anything is possible here. Welcome. So I checked in for a modest fee, which covered my meals, and settled down in what amounted to one of the most beautiful places I'd seen. In ages, the fields were full of June flowers, and it was warm, and the days were long, and, and it was really easy. I remember sitting on a hay bale with my little poetry book, trying to memorize Fern Hill by Dylan Thomas. It goes like this, or the opening goes like this. Oh, when I was young and easy under the apple boughs about the lilting house and happy as the grass was green. The night above the dingle starry, time let me hail and climb, golden in the mercy of his means. Took me a while to memorize that piece, but I have to say Fern Hill by Dylan Thomas pretty much summed up the sensibilities, the feeling, the atmosphere of the Tibetan Buddhist center. A couple of days after I arrived, a Tibetan monk came. His name was Kimpo Rinpoche. I had no idea what Tibetan Buddhism was all about. Turns out Kimpo, who is still around, who's still alive, who's still teaching, was one of the great masters. I didn't know that. This center has grown over the years to be one of the central places in France where people go to study Tibetan Buddhism. Again, I didn't know that in 1985. Kimpo came, and the thing that I remember most about him was his smile. The guy laughed all the time. He was truly a master of levity as well as a master of all things Tibetan Buddhist. And we would go down to the little cafe in the afternoon, and he 
couldn't speak much English. He had a translator named Kiki, and Kiki was very happy as well. Everybody seemed to be pretty happy at the Tibetan Buddhist Center. And so Kiki would talk to me, and I would talk to her, and Kimpo would drink his his soda or whatever he was drinking, and he would say, I'm going to America, America, a very good place. And like I said, as it turned out, he did come to America, and he is still here. And I still get newsletters from the center he founded here in the States. I don't even know if he would remember me or not, but it was really great, great fun. Of course, as I just said, everybody seemed to be very happy there. Even so, one of the things this center did because back in 1985, the social infrastructure of France was not all that strong. So the word was out around the area, and maybe even beyond that, if you had a problem, if you were wayward, if you needed help, something had happened to you, the door was open for you to come to the Tibetan Buddhist Center, and you would be embraced, and people would help you. So a day or two after Kimpo came, a woman showed up with her two daughters. She had a suitcase, her daughters had suitcases, and it was in the afternoon, and she came, and she looked rather worn down, and the daughters were rather worn down, although the children were happy. The woman seemed to be carrying the burdens. And of course, I imagine Punsa said the same thing to her. Welcome, anything is possible here. I don't know if he said that or not, but I bet somebody said, welcome. And they checked the woman in, and they gave her a place to stay, and that was that. Well, the next night after she was checked in, there was a ruckus, a brouhaha in the courtyard. And I woke up probably 1 a.m. or so and heard the brouhaha, so I went down to where all the people were gathered around. And turns out there was a pile of books in the middle of the courtyard, and this woman, who seemed to not be as balanced as some of the other people gathered around, had gone into the library and taken a number of books out, piled them in the courtyard, and set them on fire. Turns out that she felt like the people at the Tibetan Buddhist Center were sorcerers, were practicing some kind of magic that she found offensive. I remember she was standing above the fire saying, Sorcery, sorcery, sorcery. And so by that point, many people had started to gather round, even though it was late in the, in the night. And lots of the staff members were there as well. There was no antagonism toward this woman. Everybody understood she had some problems. And they also understood there were no services in the area to help her out. No doctors, no psychologists, nobody to call. So with that in mind, they put the fire out, things calmed down, so did the woman, and we all went back to bed. The next morning, the staff met and made the decision that the best thing they could do would be to take her back to where she came from. And somehow they figured out not only the town she came from, but they also spoke to her doctor in the town. Like I said, there were no doctors in this little rural area, but where this woman came from, apparently she did have a doctor, and she was having some problems with her life. And she must have departed from the town for some reason. Nobody knew why. And she was probably desperate for some reason. So that was why she showed up with her 
two daughters in tow, hoping to, to get some help. So once they made the decision to take her back, they appointed Punsa as the driver. Well, Punsa came to me and asked me if I would help him with the driving. Turns out he didn't know how to drive. Well, I knew how to drive. I was a good driver. So I agreed to go on this journey. It was a half-day journey to the coast. And we were driving this blue four-door Peugeot. So we put the woman and her two children in the back, and off we went to the coast. I don't remember the name of the town on the coast, but like I said, it took a half a day to get there. The roads were narrow and lots of traffic because it was summertime. So we finally arrived in the town. Punsa had the address of her apartment building. As it turns out, it was a large apartment building, maybe 15 stories high. Looked like something the Soviets would have built. And it was tucked away in what amounted to almost a woodsy area. And as we were driving down to the place, it took a while to figure out how to get there. One of the little girls in the back started saying, Ne pas chez moi, ne pas chez moi, not my house, not my house. Ne pas chez moi, ne pas chez moi, not my house, not my house. And the closer we got to this large apartment building, the more she started to scream almost, not my house, not my house. Unfortunately, her mother was just staring straight ahead, going, C'est là, c'est là, it's there, it's there. Little girl was saying, Not my house, n'est pas chez moi. And so as we drove down, I was listening to this, thinking, What in the world will we do? We went around a turn, and there was the huge apartment, and it was Sunday, it was summertime, the weekend. And people were just gathered on the porches of the apartment, watching us drive in. Our windows were down, and the little girl was still screaming, Ne pas chez moi, ne pas chez moi. We pulled our car into the driveway. I was at a loss. The only thing I could think to do was to just open the doors, say to Punsa, Punsa, you say a prayer, and I will get their suitcases. And that's what we did. I got the suitcases, Punsa said a prayer, and we helped them out and put them beside their suitcases and left them standing there, the mother and her two daughters and the suitcases, and the little girl was still whimpering, ne pas chez moi, ne pas chez moi. I felt terrible. I didn't know what else to do. I did everything I could. We took them back home. And as we drove away, I, I looked back and they were still standing there, and I was still feeling horrible. And we drove through the town, and all the way back to the Tibetan Buddhist Center, we both felt terrible, and we, Punsa more than I, said our prayers. And the funny thing was, when we got back to the center, everybody was very happy that we had managed to take these three people back home. And we drove in the driveway, and behind me, as we were driving in, another car was driving in. And we both parked, and the woman who originally sent me to the center got out of the car. She smiled and she said, I see you're still here. I hope you've had a good time. And I smiled back and I said, yes, we, we did have a good time here. And thank you for bringing me here, and 
I did enjoy all that vegetarian food. And she smiled at me like she had smiled at me when she first gave me the ride. A couple of days later, I caught the train back to Paris, took my memories with me. Of course, I have no idea what happened to the woman and her two children. Even to this day, I still feel terrible about dropping them off and not being able to do more. Maybe the next time I sit down and talk with Mark Trippetti about Tibetan Buddhism, I'll ask him what he thinks about it. So for now, we'll just have to leave it there. Thank you ever so much for listening to my story, and I do appreciate you tuning in to this show, Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thanks, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. Thank you, Devine Dial for all the work you do at WPVM-FM. If you would like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. Every Saturday morning, I do a writing prompt of the week session, a workshop. If you'd like to join me, you can always find more about that on imaginativestorm.com. Noon Eastern time. We'd love to have you. The door is always open. And once again, we've arrived at the end of our time together. Thank you ever so much for tuning in. I do hope you tune in again next time, and until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.